Good morning. Thank you very much, Eric, Mario, and Josep for the very kind invitation. So, cancer immunotherapy, as you certainly know, is about mostly T lymphocytes, mm -hmm. the antigens that they recognize on tumors, preferably specific antigens, also about activatory and inhibitory core receptors. We'll deal with this uh, in a minute. They are working or acting on the T cells mostly. What is done today is to manipulate or uh, modify the function of these receptors. This is CTLA4, PD1, PDL1, so it acts on that part. Adoptive T cell therapy is being used more and more. There are large progresses in there mostly through genetic manipulation of these cells, so this is dealing with the T cells themselves. And then vaccines or immunizations where one uses the antigens, and all these things can be combined. Now, very often it does not work, as you know, of course, uh, that's for the future, either because there are not enough antigens out there, or and it's not alternatively, it could be, you, could, you could have immunosuppression in the tumor, or everything can be pretty much okay, but you do not have enough of these, of these T cells in there, so they need to be re-stimulated, boosted, boosted in a way. This is mostly what PD-1, anti-PD-1 will do. So I will not, of course, deal with all these items. Today I will uh, focus and have more information for you about uh, the issue of antigens and neo epitopes, you, you listen, hear at least a lot about that these days, and it's important for many of the tumors you are dealing with. I will also mention something that is interesting about the mechanism of activity of anti-CTLA4, which, which is changing, and it, it probably will have consequences in the clinic in the years to come, and this will lead us to uh, regulatory T-cells. So T-cells are absolutely crucial. Here you know what they can do. They are, of course, not the only cells that can destroy tumor cells, but they are by large the, uh, the most uh, efficient ones. They are exquisitely specific. They can live for very long periods of time, dividing usually, so you have a memory in there. So because of their killing capacities, their extreme sensitivity and also specificity, and because there is memory, you have something that is absolutely unique to deal with cancer cells and cancer at, uh, for long periods of time. So systemic, tumor-specific, long-term protection. You do not have that with any other uh, treatment. So the antigens that are recognized, this is absolutely central. It's difficult, so it's usually uh, kind of forgotten. So what are we uh, dealing with here, I don't know whether I can have this mouse working, maybe not. So the T cells, they have the, at least the cytolytic T cells, no mouse, no mouse, no mouse. I have mouse in the lab, but not here. So they have CD8 as a core receptor. They recognize antigenic peptides that are presented on the cell surface of the tumor cells on HLA class 1 molecules, HLA, ABC. Now, these um, peptides are derived from proteins that are encoded in the DNA of the tumor cell. 
And these proteins, you see them on the bottom, they are then degraded by cytolytic proteases, usually in this, usually in this complex called proteasome. We'll come to that. You have shorter pep short peptides that come out of these proteasomes, 20 to 40 amino acids. They are then transported actively into the endoplasmic reticulum, usually further, tri further trimmed down there by peptidases. And there they can bind or not, we will see this, to the HLA class 1 heavy chains that you have in the cells. Then with the addition of beta-2 microglobulin, you have a trimeric complex that is then conveyed to the cell surface for recognition by T cells. This is working continuously in absolutely all of our cells, but there are a few exceptions. We have, there are no class one, for example, on red cells. This is uh, a class one molecule, but without a mouse, I'm unable to show you the animation. Oh yeah, it's here. What is this? So, ah, okay. So the T cell receptor is on top. And you see there the HLA class 1 molecule. You see that there is a floor, the yellow thing. It's a beta sheet. Then two alpha helices on top. And you see that between these helices, you have a red uh, spaghetti, which is a peptide. You, we are the TCR now. This is what the TCR recognizes, a small part of the peptide that is not buried into this cleft. You see side chains of amino acids of the peptide that come towards you, so towards the solvent that can be touched, recognized by the T-cell receptor. So that, that's the secret, that's the trick. And it can be absolutely uh, specific. So it can be specific down to one amino acid position. If we go back into the peptide, you see uh, the cleft there, and you see a nine amino acid peptide that is sitting, it's not covalently bound, never, sitting into this cleft, well, these amino acids, they, of course, have side chains. Well, if it's glycine, it's just an hydrogen atom. If it's a tyrosine, it's much larger and bulkier. Some, some of the side chains, they point upwards here, so they can be touched by the T-cell receptor. And others, they point downwards. They go, actually, into pockets that are present in the floor of, these, of this groove. And the pockets will vary from one HLA molecule to another. So the positions of the peptide here, position two, we count from the left, so N-terminus, and position nine, they are special amino acids because their side chains have to go into the pockets that are in that molecule. So we call that the HLA binding motif of a peptide. Without that motif, the peptide will not be bound uh, by the HLA molecule. So the positions of these pockets and their chemical uh, composition, physical chemical composition, varies between HLA molecules, between A1, A3, B5, B7, B27, and so on. This is the reason of this polymorphism. So the different HLA class 1 molecules, they cannot bind the same peptides. So the HLA binding motifs will vary. I'll give you an example. HLA A1, you see that you need at position 3, P3, an acid, aspartic acid or glutamic acid, and you need a tyrosine at position P9. For HLA-A2, very common in Caucasians, you need at P2 and at P9 small hydrophobic uh, amino acids like leucine, isoleucine, or methionine, and so on and so on. So if you do not have these amino acids at this position, no binding. 
Now, as we know, as you know, well, we, we but you, you together with me, we have six, usually, HLA class one molecules. So there is a reasonably vast choice, and this is the reason why we have three genes and a high polymorphism, so two alleles, two different alleles usually for each of these genes. Now, we go back to the tumor antigens, and the most important antigens on tumors today are these mutated antigens or neoepitopes. So because of mutations, it could be single nucleotide variations. It could be small indels insertions of deletions. You have changes in the sequence, and you have new amino acids in a protein. Either one amino acid is changed or a larger segment because within those you have change of open reading frames. So you can have much larger stretch of proteins that are different in the tumor cells as compared to the normal cells. Of course, this is important for the tumors you know with uh, microsatellites instability, so DNA repair defects. You, that, that's the example for colon. So in MSI positive colon tumors, there are many more, this is here, single nucleotide variations, but also many more indels. So more of these mutated peptides and probably more antigens uh, on the surface of the tumor cells, more T cells that respond to the tumor. So everything is working much better with these tumors. And this is why stimulating the immune system there has an effect on the tumor. So there is a lot of activity today, and it's certainly important, about predicting these so-called neo-epitopes. Why is that interesting and probably important? Well, because it's a biomarker for activity of anti-PD-1, for example. You know that. Because it's needed if you want to measure the T-cell response against the antigenic peptides. You need to know what the peptides are for that. So if you want to measure the immunological efficacy of your treatment, you need to know what the mutated peptides are. And also because that's for probably for a later stage, but not that far away. You can use the identified peptides for vaccines, together with NTPD1, by the way, or uh, with adoptive T-cell therapy if you are able to derive specific T-cells, amplify them, and uh, inject them back into the patients. So, what is done? Well, you need DNA sequencing of the tumor to identify the mutations to be sure that when you have a difference, it's not allelic polymorphism in the human population, but it's a real mutation. It's better to have DNA sequencing of normal cells of the same individual, of the patient. So you can define the SNVs and indels. If you have RNA-seq or another gene profiling, uh, by the way, but now today everything is done by high-throughput sequencing, you know which are the genes that are expressed in the tumor because if you need an antigenic peptide, it has to be encoded by a gene that is expressed there. DNA does not tell you that. And then you need DHLA, the complete HLA typing. By the way, this is now provided automatically kind of by the uh, sequencing. And then you can identify using DHLA binding motifs or at least guess which peptides are mutated and can be bound by DHLA molecules of the patient. So in this uh, scheme, because of all this, predicting which are the mutated peptides that can be bound to HLA molecules or probably conveyed to the cell surface of tumor cells, this is today easy to predict. It was a dream 20 years ago. Now it's okay. Basically, 
can be improved, but it's basically okay. What is still an issue is predicting whether or not a given peptide will come out of the proteasome machinery unharmed, because the proteasome could cut in the middle of your peptide. Then it's lost. So predicting this antigen processing, as we call it, is not that easy today. Why is that? Well, because proteasomes are very complex machines, I'll show you a small example, and because there are other enzymes than proteasomes that can do the job, we know a few, there are probably others. So it's, it's a complex process. You are not surprised. It's always like that. This is biology. Proteasomes. So there are different types of proteasomes, unfortunately. So you see there are four rings in there. The two middle rings contain, each of them, three proteases. And it's there that the cutting is done. You see on the left what is called standard proteasome. You see three catalytic subunits. They're called beta-1, beta-2, beta-5. We don't care. Okay, they, they can do a certain type, certain types of proteolysis. Now you also have, you see, immunoproteasomes, and they have different catalytic subunits. All three are different. On the far right, it's proteasomes that you can only, can only find in, in thymus. We can forget that today. In between standard and immuno, you have two different types that are intermediate. So it's a mix of the two types of proteases. So it's not that simple. These proteasomes can have different activities, and we have many examples of peptides that can be prepared, I will use this simple term, by a standard proteasome, but they will be destroyed by the immunoproteasome. They will never get out. They will be cut in the middle. And the reverse. So prediction there requires that you know whether you or not you have this or that type of proteasomes in the tumor cells when you treat the patients. Because in all cells, we usually have standard proteasomes. But in the presence of interferon gamma, inflammatory cytokine produced a lot by NK cells and by activated T cells locally, all cells start to produce immunoproteasomes. So they make the immunosubunits, which are integrated into the proteasomes, better than the standard subunits. But the proteasome, proteasomes are changing. So it's difficult to predict exactly what you will have in the tumor when you treat. For all these reasons, and because there are other enzymes involved, it's difficult to predict this processing today. So there we, it's not a black box, but it's tough. So all the predictions you are hearing about, they are not yet perfect. That's the least we can say. Now, all this is about these neoepitopes. Many of you, you are treating patients without a DNA repair defect in the tumor. So what do I do for the patients with a tumor that is not MSI plus? That's most of them, of, of course. So what? We are forgetting you. Immunology is forgetting you. Well, no. There are other types of tumor antigens. 
And there are also unconventional tumor antigens. So this is also something a bit subtle, but I think very important. So other types of tumor antigens, I mentioned this last year. It's, it has been published many times. So you see that there are the mage-type antigens, so genes that are expressed selectively due to DNA demethylation in tumors, not present normally in normal tissues. Viral antigens, of course, this is not new. And then sometimes differentiation antigens, this is for melanoma prostate B cells, and sometimes overexpressed antigens. So on the left, they are highly tumor-specific. On the right, not that much. So we have to be much more careful with the two types on the right. So there are others. It's not only the neoepitopes. There are many others. And then there is also this. What does this mean? Well, these are antigenic peptides. And we have to be careful about the definition. I mean by that, peptides that are presented by HLA molecules and that can be recognized by T lymphocytes. So that's what we define as antigenic peptides. Well, some of them, they cannot be predicted from the sequence of their encoding gene. Okay, but how is that possible? Well, there are two reasons, well, at least. One is post-translational modifications. You know that peptides can be proteins that can be phosphorylated. Well, you can have a phosphor group in the antigenic peptide, and sometimes the phosphoryl moiety is recognized by the T-cell receptor, so it's required. Of course, it has to be tumor-specific. Sometimes glycosylation is important for recognition, so it's a glycopeptide that is recognized. On the contrary, sometimes because the peptide has been deglycosylated by N-glycanase, for example, in the cytosol, the asparagine that binds, that, be, the, that carries the sugar, is deamidated into aspartate. So in the DNA, you have a sequence for asparagine, but in the final peptide, it's aspartic acid. It's not at all the same, of course. The T cells make a big difference there. So it's not so easy to predict what you will exactly have. And then there is something that is the, the top of the complexity for, for today. But some people think that this is very, very important. I would uh, concur. Peptide splicing, what is this? So you have a sequence there of amino acids encoded by the DNA and RNA. A part of that, nine amino acids, they are processed in the cell, and you have an antigenic peptide. Okay, that's the normal situation. However, sometimes what you can have is this. You have a final peptide that is composed of two stretches of protein that are not contiguous in the parental protein. So there is a splicing event, and this is done by the proteasome. It was discovered by... The fact that it was done by the proteasome was discovered by Benoit van der Neyen. Even more than that, sometimes the splicing is done in the reverse orientation. So you see there that from the DNA, the sequence on top, you can not at all, but not at all, predict what will be the sequence of the final antigenic peptide. So you see that there is a vast array of antigenic peptides out there. Many of them can be tumor-specific that we are totally ignoring when we simply do the neoepitope prediction, as I've shown to you. So there is much more out there, but it is difficult to analyze uh, with the tools we have today. So the number of antigens that can be used is much larger that, than simply the neoepitopes. 
Even if many of them are not spontaneously immunogenic, they can become so if we use them. And we need more work to understand rules of that to be able to predict what, what is there. We probably need very sophisticated proteomics techniques uh, to do that with small pieces of tumor material. Okay, I quit the neoepitopes and go into the CTLA4 PD1 business. So this is about the fact that to activate the T cell, you need a T cell receptor and an antigen in front of it. You always need that. But you have co-stimulatory receptors, stimulatory co-receptors, sorry, and inhibitory co-receptors that work at the same time. The reason for that is that it allows a fine-tuning of T cell activation depending on time and space. There are several examples. So you, you recognize their CTLA-4 uh, on, on red, and you recognize also PD-1. They are inhibitory co-receptors. Now we have antibodies that can either stimulate the system by having an agonistic activity on the stimulatory co-receptors or that boost the system by decreasing the inhibition that is conveyed by inhibitory receptors. This is what anti-CTLA-4, anti-PD-1, and anti-PD-1 antibodies are doing. So that's what happens on a T cell. So initially you need a stimulation with, a co-stimulation with CD28, which is the key molecule in all this. CD28 binds B7, which is only present on a few cell types, including the dendritic cells. So this is required for T cell priming, which means very first activation of the T cell, the first time that the antigen is recognized. After a few hours, CTLA4 comes on the surface of the T cell, so it's an activation marker, actually. It has a larger affinity for B7 than CD28. The latter is outcompeted. So the reason is that CD28 does not do its job anymore. So this is why you have a decrease of T cell activity. So it's a physiological and normal um, negative feedback loop, if you wish. If you do not have that, you have very serious autoimmune uh, problems. So this is required. It's not some kind of an immunological luxury. We, we need this. For PD-1, it's kind of the same mechanism. It acts usually later during the life of a T cell. You have PD-1 that comes on the surface of activated T cells, and it binds uh, one of the two ligands, PD-L1 or PD-L2. Now, about the activity of CTLA-4, there is more than that. And initially, this was completely unexpected. And there were results in mice, but it's the first time I, I tell this in non-professional immunologists uh, uh, because it is, it's a bit tough, but I'm now convinced that this is true in patients as well for the reasons I will mention. So you know that antibodies, well, they recognize something, but they also act through their FC portion, so the bottom part of the molecule. And this is going through different type of receptors on complement molecules or on cells. FC gamma receptors are very important there for, IG, for the activity of IgGs. So this is difficult because there are many. So these are the FC receptors that we have and that recognize the constant part of IgG antibodies only. 
you see that we have some that activate the cells and some that inhibit the cells. We focus on this one. It's an activating receptor. It's present on NK cells. They are lytic cells, and also on macrophages, which can also kill cells sometimes. When you have cells covered by IgG antibodies, NK cells or macrophages will bind to the FC part of the IgGs, and they will lyse the cell that is recognized by the antibodies. So this is called ADCC, so antibody-dependent cellular cytotoxicity. Binding to this receptor involves sugars on the IgG molecules. So we have sugars there on asparagine residues. This is why I mentioned them earlier. You see the structure of the sugar. We know that if an antibody is non-glycosylated, for example, if we remove this asparagine, we mutate it, there is no sugar. Well, ADCC goes down dramatically because there is no more binding to this FC gamma receptor. And there are other details there. So this is hugely important for the engineering of monoclonal antibodies that are using uh, in patients. So it's more and more important to understand all this in detail. So now there are new results about what is being done by anti-CTLA4. So this is a new version of data in mice because now this is mice which have a sarcoma and they are transgenic for the human FC gamma receptors because there are subtle differences between human um, men and mice there. And they are treated with anti-CTLA4 antibodies. They recognize more CTLA4. However, these antibodies are uh, chimeric and they have human FC portions. So they can they are completely mimic the interaction of the, between the FC part of the IgG and the FC gamma receptors. So these interactions are human, even though we are in a mouse with a mouse tumor and a mouse CTLA4. So let's, let's have a look at the result. Treating mice with anti-CTLA4, here you see tumor grows, the tumor, they grow. Zero out of 10 long-term protection of the animals. Here we use uh, an anti-CTLA4, sorry, it was a control on the left. You see that in 10 out of 15 mice, it's fine. So there is clearly a therapeutic efficacy. If we remove the asparagine in the, well, they, in the IgG1, you see that the effect is completely lost. This is important. You see that there, the effect does not, this effect does not depend on the fact that the antibody binds to CTLA4, because this is still happening. But the effect is lost because the antibody cannot be bound by FC gamma receptors anymore. So it's completely different from what we thought. This is an antibody that is mutated. Uh, you see the mutations there. And because of that, it binds much better to the FC gamma receptor. And you see that the clinical effect is much better as well. And for IgG2, it's the same as for IgG1. Is that relevant in patients? Well, apparently, yes. And this is also new. Because basically what I've just shown there, we knew that in mice. But whether or not it would be relevant in patients, we did not know. So 
they have reanalyzed, it's a meta-analysis, two studies, of course, in melanoma, with anti-CTL4, with ipilimumab, which is an, anti, an, an IgG1. And they have used this marker, which is a polymorphism in this FC gamma receptor. And we know for a long time that this is a polymorphism get, that gives you a better receptor, so higher affinity in particular for IgG1, but not only. It was shown to be a biomarker of response for trastuzumab. You probably have heard of this. This is why trastuzumab became an immunotherapy instead of a no, or, hormonal, or in, on top of an hormonal therapy. What you see here is the anti-CTLA-4 response rate in patients with a low number of neoepitopes, to simplify, in the tumor, the two groups. However, you see that in one group, there is this VU158F polymorphism. In the other group, no. So differences in affinity of the receptor. No difference. Nobody cares. We knew this because it had been done. But this has not been done. They have repeated the analysis only on patients with a tumor carrying many neoepitopes, to simplify. And you see that here there is a big difference. The patients who have a high affinity FC gamma receptor, they are much better off. And this is, of course, very important. You also see that there is a much higher clinical activity in the groups with this high affinity receptor, whether they have also more indels or whether they have on top of, of that CD8 infiltration into the tumor. And so this is in two other groups from another study. So they compared two groups. The two of them have tumors with a high CD8 infiltration because there are many mutations in there. And you see that there is a big difference in therapeutic efficacy, whether you do or not have this high affinity receptor. So conclusions for this, it's my last slide. The clinical efficacy of CTLA-4 blockade does not depend only on CTLA-4 blockade, obviously. And this is really new, in, in human. It depends on this. The most likely mechanism, I've not shown the data for this, is that there is a killing of suppressive T cells, the Tregs, because these are cells that are present in the tumor and that carry continuously high levels of CTLA-4. So it's not shown here, but it's almost certain now that this is because there is an effect on Tregs, on these regulatory T cells. So they become an even more promising target for immunotherapy than they were or they were thought to become. This might explain the destruction of Tregs with anti-CTLA-4. This might explain that you have more toxicity with anti-CTLA-4 than when you block the PD-1 pathway. And it shows that we need to investigate more on strategies to block the activity of these Tregs, preferably only in tumors. So I think you will see that in the years uh, to come. Thank you very much. <laughs>